Hey, welcome back. This is Bowen for All Seasons, episode three. I'm Dan. I'm Ben. Hello. And we have some big news on our end. Um, ben, I'll let you do the introduction. Yes, very excited to announce that we will now be also streaming our podcast through Parlor. It's very exciting. So uh, we're ready to give you the whole unvarnished truth without any editing or interference. So that's very exciting for us. Um, again, uh, it is a big, big week as always. Everything happens. The world keeps spinning. We have a new president. Yeah, how do you, uh, unplanned, but how do you, how do you feel? How do you, like, do you feel different? I don't know if I feel different. I feel relieved. I feel, I feel like that surface level of relief. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was, I watched some of the inauguration. I watched the um, Poet Laureate. I thought she had a great, great speech. That was, that was the highlight for me. And, and the new radicals reuniting for some weird reason. I get, well, I, I heard it was a Biden favorite. If you guys know, oh, new radicals had that song in the nineties, um, you get what you give. Yeah, apparently that was uh, Bo Biden's cancer fight song. Not going to make any jokes. Uh, I mean, I, I could. I don't know. Just, <laughs> I don't uh, know. Never miss an opportunity to remind us about that. Uh, thank you, Joe. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel. Uh, well, like, yeah, I feel good. I feel better. Definitely. Like, there's a sense of relief. I guess it hasn't sunk in yet because, like, I mean, I'm in another country and I rarely get to go outside. So yeah, it hasn't really, it, it's, it's really, it, it is sort of a surreal thing. Cause I'm so, you know, cause Trump was our president for 40 years <laughs> and it's hard to, it's hard to let go of the, uh, of that reality in a way that I don't, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, that I, yeah, I don't like it. It just doesn't seem it doesn't seem real yet. Have you seen any change on the UK side of things? Have papers talked about it or any of the news? Yeah, yeah I mean, everybody's talking about it. Um, I think th yeah, I would say the uh, the coverage is very much similar to what you're seeing over in the US as well. Every everybody's kind of collectively uh, breathing a sigh of relief and uh, this is sort of, you know, I would say probably incorrectly asking, acting like this is some amazing new era that's going to fix everything. But I'm not going to say it's not a good thing. Of course, it's a good thing. It's great. Um, but I don't know. Speaking of about not letting go, um, we are not going to be letting go of Trump on this episode because we are going to do a where are they now? Former Trump admin officials. And I think this will be a good lead in to our guest, um, Dr. Grant Julin. Uh, ben can tell you a little bit more about who Grant Julin is and what we're going to talk about with him. Sure. Uh, Grant Julin is a professor of ethics and philosophy. I came across his writing. Uh, he speaks a lot on humor studies, specifically on ethics in comedy and satire and sort of looking at the power structures of satire and the ethics of that uh, and it's a, it's a really interesting discussion. It's a subject that's really near and dear to my heart that I think is uh, very important. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a very fun conversation. I was very happy to talk to him. 
Yeah, somehow we're going to get even less serious with this episode. And we're just going to kind of, as I mentioned, we're going to go through some former Trump administration officials, as well as talk about the books that came out during the Trump administration. And while these last four years have felt very surreal, um, what that means, what, what that felt like, really, what that meant for satire and what we're thinking as we go forward to so-called Biden years and the kind of books that we can expect during the Biden years. Books during the Biden year sounds like such a an oxymoron at this point, but yeah, probably a lot less of them. Well, there's already a ton of them coming out. Um, I assume they'll all be picture books. So, where where do you want to start? Should we start with Should we talk about the inauguration a little bit? Yeah, let's let's discuss the inauguration. Um, there yeah. were some, some really golden takes by our media partners um, there. Ooh, yeah. yeah, some real heavy hitting Woodward and Bernstein esque adversarial journalism i don't know what was your overall i you know like you said i i watched parts of it i you know i i I was looking at the video earlier today which is seven hours long and if if anybody watched the whole thing you wasted your time but i did i did pop around to different parts of it i guess i don't know what was your general thoughts on it i've never and also i will say this i think this is the first inauguration i've ever watched any of i mean what what is there really to say other than like the press has felt like the Trump administration really went out against them. And rhetorically, sure, I, I guess I can agree with that. He called them the enemy of the people. There was that controversy. I don't know if you remember that Walmart, Walmart I think, on their online store was selling a shirt that said, it's like, one, journalist, two, and then, mm-hmm. like, yeah, two gallows and three was, like, a nuisance. It's, like, some assembly required or something like that. They've really felt like a persecuted bunch of people during these last four years. And like I said, rhetorically, that might be true, but so they are all uh, breathing a sigh of relief. Like much of the world is, I just, I, I guess, I guess then the reaction to that after being so critical of someone for four years, it it's being quite the contrast to see them like fully embrace someone who, as Casey Gain pointed out in our first interview, like wrote the 94 crime bill is a notorious liar has what eight women came out against him for like sexual harassment yeah something something like that and then uh tara reed tara, tara reed yeah the tara yeah. Reed. They, they won't even open up the records to deny her claims to to refute her claims i should say yeah i i just sure like i said i know it's going to be better i'm sure it's going to, i'm sure he's going to manage things better than donald trump just because the, he set the bar so low yeah, I mean, that's just like a, that's the thing that everyone keeps bringing up and, and yes, I, sure, I guess, but it's, it's, yeah, it's such a low bar that it's not even, doesn't even merit discussion. I don't know, I had a lot of thoughts about the, the inauguration itself. First of all, I mean, watching it felt like, yes, with the sixpence of the, uh, of the media, and we could talk about a little bit of the first White House press corps briefing, watching it and, you know, I suppose that all inaugurations have some level of this. It was just sort of amplified by the fact that there were 25,000 troops basically occupying Washington, D.C., and that they were, you know, the the uh, National Mall, rather than being empty, because for, you know, obvious reasons, they're not going to have huge crowds there, because that would be wildly irresponsible. But instead of doing that, it was just rows and rows and rows of American flags. Um, it just really had this sort of North Korea vibe to it of this very, very militaristic, very nationalistic press just heaping praise. And 
started watching the uh, inauguration coverage from the beginning where they're just, you know, waiting for people to show up and it's just basically filling time. And, you know, they're talking about, oh, how many left-handed presidents have we had and a bunch of bullshit like that. And it was like, it's just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking. It's like, why the fuck are we doing this? Like, we don't, like, why, why do we need to have all this grandstanding at all? Who is this for? Because mm -hmm. I don't feel like it's for, like, do, do people actually want to watch that? Like, do pe did people really want to tune in and stuff? Or is this some sort of, like, self-aggrandizement for the, you know, the people in attendance? I don't know. It just, it was all very, very grotesque to mm -hmm. me. And yeah, Poet Laureate, I, I didn't, I, I listened to part of it. I got bored. I'm, I'm unpopular for that, I suppose. But uh, you're canceled. Yeah, cancel me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure it was fine. Uh, but then, yeah, and then the the press corps, the first press corps briefing with just like the most ridiculous softball questions I've ever seen. The first question, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, sort of, but it was like, "Are you going to be towing the line for Joe Biden's White House's message, or are you going to be here standing for truth?" and transparency and what's her name giving the briefing was like we're here to you know give you truth and transparency which is is factually untrue about what the white house press secretary is for any administration i mean yeah. like let's not forget that they are they are propagandists that's what that is in any country with any administration um and you know, propaganda isn't necessarily malicious, uh, but it is propaganda. They're not. They're there to tell you a certain message. They're not there. You know, they're not there to give you the whole unvarnished truth. That's the journalist's job. And then they're asking. And then, like one of the other questions was asking, uh, oh, "Does uh, does Joe Biden plan to change Trump's color scheme from Air Force One?" It was oh, like, goodness. "Are you fucking kidding me? People There's are dying." What? There's also a, a controversy, controversy over his Peloton bike. Do you hear about that? Oh. No, I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah. Um, stop the presses. What uh, the fuck? What, what is a Peloton bike, by the way? Is that, is, what's um, different about it from just a normal <laughs> exercise bike? I guess I should have read the article. I, I don't oh, really know. I, I think no, this one might have the, um, Do your fucking research, Dan. <laughs> I think this one might have a screen on it and you can participate. Um, uh, it's online like I guess like online Zoom classes or something, so you could have an instructor wow. yelling at you to cycle faster. Well, well. Uh, on that note, our friend, um, friend of the show, uh, at Doosmanian, D O U Z M A N I A N, has a Peloton bike and is very vocal about it on Twitter. So maybe I'll hit her up and get some clarification about that. Yeah, bring it on and uh, Peloton reach out to us we are looking for advertisers yeah yeah we, we I will totally i will tow the company line <laughs> uh you know it you, up, it, speaking speaking of your your bit on jen saki who is the white house new press um jen Psaki, yeah yeah secretary she and like you know this not towing the administration's line things like that wouldn't it be great if we apply the same scrutiny to Biden and all future administrations the same way we did to Trump? I mean, yes and no, but 
Well, yes, uh, flat out, yes. But like, let's also remember that the stuff that they were going after Trump for was stuff that I don't think normal people give a shit about. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you'd see you know, some reporter going, you know, what about Stormy Daniels? It's like people, normal people don't give a shit about Stormy Daniels. Like, like you can, you can compare what those people, like what the press corps asks compared to like a town hall meeting. I think you're gonna get very different questions. Mm -hmm. And normal people ask questions that actually affect them. Whereas the adversarial journalism, I mean, I'm not saying it was all bad, but a lot of the adversarial journalism going against Trump was kind of had to be like sexy palace intrigue. Yeah. Rather than anything substantive. Yeah, uh, I remember, I think, I think it might have been Washington Post uh, had an article that there were roaches in the White House or something like that. It, uh, who gives probably? a shit? Like who wrote? Uh, probably it's, it's. It's a big place, you know. It's like a big place, and it's like uh, like three hundred years old or whatever. And and again, like it somehow is. <laughs> who gives who, a who shit? That headline during the Trump administration is just like, oh yeah, of course it's because this guy moved in, right? Clearly, right? Yeah, I I don't know. I've lived in New York. There's roaches everywhere. It's... Yeah, yeah. In luxury apartments, there are roaches. I hate to break it to everybody. Yeah, uh, and I guess we fucked up. Uh, Stormy Daniels isn't in our. Where are they now? Uh, did she write a book? She probably wrote a book. Oh, she had to write. Or she's writing a book. L let me just confirm. She was on SNL quite a bit. She was actually on SNL. Yeah, she was on SNL. Ah, uh, yeah. It's called full disclosure. Full disclosure. Uh, Ooh. Released on my birthday in 2018. Consequently, October second. Sorry, I missed that one. That would have been. That would have been the perfect gift. Uh, yeah, it really would have. Um, I think it was probably overshadowed by the murder of um, Khashoggi. Uh, that was your real gift. I forgot. That, yeah, yeah that, that was a big one. My 30th. Silent, silencing Saudi dissidents has always been a passion of Dan's. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I guess like, you know, we the fact checker industry has really benefited during the Trump years with good reason. I mean, clearly he's a deceitful guy. I've said it before, like for someone who does lie so much, he was pretty candid about many things. Like, I don't know if you remember when they were trying to something with Saudi Arabia and like blocking Saudi Arabia for something or another Congress was and Trump said, well, they actually buy a lot of our weapons. So oh, that, that was hilarious. I mean, like, again, remarkably candid. Yeah, I was like, OK, I mean, it's horrible, but fair play. Yeah, that's true. A lot of his lies were well. I mean, he had he had he had a, and I don't want to beat this dead horse too much, but like so so much of his lies were I don't want to exactly call them innocuous, but they were like, you know, they were they were equivalent to uh, a kid at summer camp sort of lying about that his dad owns a Corvette or something like they were they were like just like weird self-aggrandizing nonsense yeah. that really really didn't matter one way or another. He'll say whatever comes to his head. Uh, yeah, no. So his, yeah, his his lying was like I don't know. It was like a different level of pathology that didn't didn't always seem to it didn't always seem to serve a purpose. I think this was actually a good segue to talk about this media model that was created during the Trump years about this like gossip column journalism is what I like to call it. Um, and Michael Wolf, um, if everybody remembers him, his book came out in 2018. Uh, it's called Fire and Fury, and it was like basically this. And I think Michael Wolf is actually a gossip columnist before this. Um, 
there is like this very ad- anonymous administration official say this that trump is again like roaches in the white house he's eating mcdonald's with his shirt open or something like that he watches fox news all day i don't know i think they fed off of one another and this vicious cycle and as a result, we have over 1,200 books published about the Trump administration over the last four years. I'm going to say that one more time. 1,200 books over four years. Some pro, mostly negative, though. So I, I'm interested in your opinion on this. I mean, first of all, I haven't read any of those books because why? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are reading those books, stop. It's You're wasting your time. Read Malcolm Gladwell or some shit. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But I, yeah, I think it's sort of like going on that gossip colonist thing. It's sort of like like the Trumpet, Trump years kind of turned us all into mean girls. <laughs> like any kind of any kind of dirt we could have to talk shit about him at any given time. Um, and I'm not saying he didn't foment that by, you know, doing exactly that. We wanted to have ammo back at him, but I feel like that's really what like created that it was just any sort of thing like oh my god does trump wear diapers i bet he wears diapers by the way i think he absolutely does wear diapers but like any sort of any sort of got hot goss was super exciting and just people it it became addictive people and i think people are still hooked on it you know uh it's going to be hard to let go of Mm -hmm. because it's so juicy he has he has fostered so much so much hate that mm. uh that you really can't get enough that any 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 little bit of information that gives you a chance to go aha i knew it mm. and that i yeah i i don't know a lot about fire and fury but fire and fury as far as i recall seemed to be laden with falsehoods um yeah that we were sort of happy to believe because it feels good it feels like i think i think so much of so much of the resistance thinking and on both sides, actually, on both sides of, of like Q people and Trump supporting people. And then also now with uh, the newly, I don't know who coined this term, but the new blue anon thing, which I think is a perfect characterization and the resistance left. It's, it's been so much more about affirming how we feel rather than, rather than something being objectively true or useful or, you know, at all constructive. It's just like, I have this, I have this deep trauma and hate from the events of what have been going on uh, that anything that's going to make me feel better about it or feel that it affirms my, my worldview, I'm going to just inhale as quickly as possible. I, I'm interested to see if you think, if Trump leaned into this, and if so, why? Leaned into what, what precisely? Like, just leaned into... I, I think that he, it's not like he rose above any of the negative news that came out about him. It's like he doubled down and engaged with every gossip column, every gossipy book written about him. Yeah, as to his motivations behind it, I can't really speak to that, but obviously he did. Uh, he's he's obs- he was obviously obsessed with being the focus of all conversation all the time. That's been his entire life. Is uh, the the man is really incapable thinking about anything other than himself he's singularly minded in that way so for 
whether or not it was on purpose, I don't think he could ever turn down a opportunity to either embrace something that seemed to be some sort of glowing representation of him or, uh, you know, take credit for something that wasn't his or also if there was something that he thought painted him in a bad light, there, he's just like, in, like, at, like physically incapable of not going after it because he needs to, you know, whether he needs to set the record straight or whether he knows that all publicity is good publicity. I don't know if it was that calculated. I think it's sort of just, yeah, I think it's a pathology with him that uh, he's sort of like water. He just flows. He's just, he, he's just like, he, Trump is going to Trump. He's going to go there. Yeah. I, I personally feel like it is governance by chaos. Like clearly, you know, whether intentional or not, he, it did become a lightning rod for him to pass other legislation that really, in my opinion, didn't get much play. And specifically with like EPA regulations, but they rolled back, which um, New York Times is reporting, it's going to take years to reverse some of those policies, which is a real shame. And like, I, I don't remember any public pressure about this. Maybe, maybe designating federal lands back to, I can't remember the state, but he designated some federal lands back to state. It was going to be more for um, oil drilling. It was out West. I mean, um, I think it was, uh, well, there was, a, there was Alaskan oil drilling, wasn't there? There's also the Alaska oil drilling. It sounds like the Biden administration is able to reverse that once. Was, I don't know if it was because it was an executive order or what, but... Yeah, I think that was one of the executive orders. Yeah. Um, I think this was the, I think, I think Elephant Ears National Park. But yeah, it got um, transferred back to state ownership and probably for um, oil drilling. So that, that one, I think, also is going to be able to be rolled back. But like some of the, the water water rules um, yeah. that have definitely polluted more of a clean water supply, which is constantly on a, a downturn. And um, carbon emissions is another one that was huge. Again, I, I feel like these policies didn't get much play. Well, um, I, think that goes, I think that goes back to what we were saying before, that they were just, it, it wasn't sexy. It, was, it wasn't yeah. Stormy Daniels. It wasn't, you know, Russia Gate. It wasn't some piss tape or whatever. It wasn't Trump wears diapers, which again, Donald Trump wears diapers. Uh, but it was, yeah, I would, I would, I would fault the media for that hundred yeah. percent because the, the, like, why, why shouldn't you be talking about that? Mm. This is, you know, this is an old point, but he, he should have been impeached 20 times, yeah. uh, just not for most of the reasons that, or at least not for the first impeachment. I thought like he, he was doing something impeachable every day. It's just, we were so distracted by you know, the gauche representation of the evil orange man that we couldn't really focus on anything else. I, I know during the, the pandemic, for example, that's really when they were going after Iran even again. Throughout the pandemic, they denied, uh, I don't know if it was just any kind of like aid when Iran had these floods in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, Russia was was been one that I, I focused on a lot. And while there seems to be this like cozy relationship, so we're, this alleged cozy relationship between Putin and um, Trump, it doesn't really bear out in any of the policy. And again, I, I think he ended up becoming a lightning rod with all of his, like you said, gauche personality and the mean things that he would say about people. And it ended up becoming a distraction in my mind for some of the policies that ended up being pursued by the administration. Yeah, and I suppose that's something I would, like. I wonder less about it now that we're out the other side, but I did wonder while it was going on was ever if this was just some evil genius of his of being able to just direct the conversation where he wanted to. Um, 
I feel less and less like that's the case because especially in the last year, his, his senility really started to show more and more. Um, and maybe it was the people around him, the people under him who uh, just were able to capitalize that and use those moments to do the more uh, nefarious acts uh, under, you know, under the table when we were all looking somewhere else. Um, I just want to go through some of the my favorite um, titles of Trump books out of the 1,200 that were published these last four years. Um, oh, yeah. Could I, could I say this real quick? So, uh, mm-hmm. so, yeah, we had the idea that we wanted to, first of all, I think, I think Dan would agree with me that we would like to, as soon as possible, not have to talk about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like with the impeachment stuff that uh, we're not going to get our wish right away. Uh, and it seems like with the media that, I mean, remains, you know, time will tell. Um, but we thought it was a good good time to look back at, you know, I said that it, it was like he's been president for 40 years. And I was thinking part of that is because there was such a huge turnover. There was so much shit happening all the time. There was new faces, new scandals, all that stuff going on all the time. So we wanted to, we wanted to look back at some of the, the names and faces we may have forgotten and where are they now? And uh, we'll get into that, of how that really ties into the book thing. But I just wanted to uh, read off a few facts from a uh, Bo- uh, Brookings Institute uh, mm-hmm. report that is, so from Trump's A-team, which uh, yeah, his top advisors and cabinet, turnover was 92% as of January 14th, 2021. 45% of the A-team departures have undergone serial turnover in that time. So that means uh, different positions have turned over more than twice, some of them uh, three, four times. Uh, and that means a total of 14 total cabinet position turnovers in the Trump tenure. And 85% of them have written some stupid fucking book. So anyway, just wanted to throw that out there as little context. Let's let's talk about some stupid fucking books. Yeah. Um, so this is this is uh, by people who are pro-Trump as well as anti-Trump. So we're gonna have a little mix here. Um, one of the the lamest, in my opinion, that came out is um, one by Rob Sears and then another by Hart Seeley. They they share a similar topic, but I'm just gonna give you the titles and you'll get an idea. Um, There's the beautiful poetry of Donald Trump, which is really just, of course, mocking the way that Donald Trump speaks, and it does contain old tweets and quotes attributed to Donald Trump. Great coffee table book, sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it could be pretty funny, I'll admit. Um, He does have some pretty hilarious tweets, and, you know, he is known to say things in a very unique way. Um, and then the other book by Hart Seeley is called Bard of the Deal, the Poetry of Donald Trump. Um, one was released in 2015 and one in 2017. So um, hope you enjoy the paycheck, guys. Uh, Bob Woodward, um, of course, I just want to mention this because um, he does have a third book coming out, but he did Fear, Trump in the White House, and he did Rage, and then he has a, another book coming out. So The Toddler in Chief, What Donald Trump Teaches Us About the Modern Presidency. Very cute. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. That one's by Daniel W. Dresner. Really living up to my namesake here. Thanks. 
a very stable genius. How could you miss out on that one? Um, that's from Philip Rucker and Carol Linning. Um, apparently they have another book coming out too about Trump. So this is the thing of all these like tongue in cheek liberal ones of like, look how stupid this guy is. Like, it's like, do, how many more of these goddamn books do we need? Like of, of the ones you just listed, are they different at all? Or are they, are they the exact same book with a, with a, a different snarky, stupid ass title? Yeah. of just this yeah just this like we're not learning anything or um hum hum like um our, our buddy david k johnson the making of donald trump that's just, uh, yeah yeah I, I don't know if he's ever really broke i was he with the the tax returns guy right was he one of the he's been on um democracy now a few times yeah well he did uh he was trump's biographer back in the day back in like the 80s yeah i believe mm-hmm. and uh you know, nothing against his, he's done some good reporting on it. I think he, he definitely had Trump psychosis like 30 years before all of us. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the, the last four years have been very lucrative to his career, I'm sure. So I was going to say one thing I do like about, J- I think it was David K. Johnson was the one uh, who was, who was the first person to say it was like, Donald Trump is not sober. Donald Trump is pilled up all the fucking time. Um, I, I just have a few more of these that uh, these these get good. Um, yeah. Uh, where do we have? Of course, we have John Bolton's book, "The Room Where It Happened," a White House memoir. John Bolton's, yeah, we should talk about that more at length. But not not a friend of the show. Um, yeah. Jim Acosta. We keep trying to get him on, but yeah. <laughs> he recently debated Giannis Varoufakis, which is weird. Um, uh, the enemy really? of the people. Yeah, dangerous time to tell the truth in America. That's Jim Acosta. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, got it. God bless him. He, he's been very strong fighting for Julian Assange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Breath by the way, we're going to name all 1,200 books. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. a bit longer than uh, our usual show. Dave, David Frum, of course, has written a book. I think he's actually written two. Uh-huh. Um, one of them is Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic. Um. You know, I, I, part of me is um, a little okay with these guys criticizing Trump because they are the ones that gave it, gave him to us. So, yeah, if we could have a big, if we could have a big gold star on each of their books, just to remind us where they came from. David Frum, in particular, who, you know, we can talk about this at another time, but fuck that guy. We are yeah. we. And um, leave that out too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> David from come on the show. <laughs> There's of course Keith Olbermann's just to to wrap it up is Trump is fucking crazy. Then in parentheses, this is not a joke. Good old Keith. Brilliant. Yeah. Um let's uh where are they now, Ben? Where are they now? Who should we start with? Uh let's see. Um why did Omarosa come to mind? <laughs> Amorosa, I didn't do any looking into Amorosa, but uh, she wrote a book too, I believe. She, she uh, wrote a book. Her book is called Unhinged, I think, where she claims that Donald Trump dropped the uh, the N bomb. You know who else said that is um God, what's his name? Tom Tom Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, 
I forgot Tom Arnold tried to like do some uh did some like documentary about Trump era. It was like he said he had the case that he had the tapes. I was like, what are you doing here, Tom Arnold? Um, I just I just want to quote this beginning of this deadline article. It says Tom Arnold hasn't given up his quest to uncover incriminating evidence against Donald Trump, but his Viceland series, the hunt for the hunt for the Trump tapes with Tom Arnold, is over. A source said it was only ever intended for an, as an eight episode series. <laughs> I guess come he didn't on, find it. Come on the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, we want the facts, and Tom Arnold is the only one who can give them to us. Wait, I, I actually didn't know there was a show based about this, but I just got to read this one paragraph. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you didn't hear about that? Oh, I remember that. Oh, over the course of the show that premiered September 18th, Arnold searched high and low for elusive videotapes allegedly showing Trump in all manner of compromising positions, from the infamous P-tape in a Moscow hotel room to an outtake on The Apprentice in which Trump allegedly uses the N-word. Arnold hasn't found the tape yet, if they exist, but he hasn't stopped looking. Good luck with your search, Tom. Yeah, we wish you all the best, friend of the show, Tom Arnold. So Omarosa, um, originally, uh, obviously originally a, an administration figure, stuck with Trump for a long time and then had pretty public fallout. Trump called her a dog, pretty unflattering. And then, yeah, she said he said the N-word. I'm sure he has many times. Where is she now? Where is Omarosa right now? She's not on MSNBC. Okay, of course. So one tick for an MSNBC spot. This is. I, I, I don't know if she actually is. Um, this is going to be a running theme. <laughs> Probably is. She, she did join uh, a legal action against the Trump campaign for allegedly violating the Equal Pay Act. Since she, she left on January 20th, 2018, and then in February 2018, Newman, Omarosa's uh, last name is uh, Newman, Omarosa Newman, um, publicly criticized the Trump administration on the reality television show celebrity big brother stated that she would not vote for trump again so that's where she is we wish her all the best yeah well i i thought we could uh go back to uh one of the yeah, one of the original crew and really one of the most entertaining uh sean spicer nice as we all remember he was trump's original uh media chief white house uh white house press secretary uh who now works for Newsmax, which I believe is a far right, um, far right news organization. He has not written a book. He was on Dancing with the Stars, though. Uh, I, I did watch his uh, his first dance performance uh, to "Spice Up Your Life," wearing a lime green. I don't know what you call the shirt. It's like the, those like Copacabana Cuban, you know, in the mask where Jim Carrey's at the uh, nightclub. Yeah. Doing the dance with Cameron Diaz. It's it, or no, it's not that it's when he's, uh, it's when he's dodging bullets from. The, oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And he gets all any, he, he uh, yeah. So he's wearing one of those weird frilly shirts uh, and he did a dance on that. I gotta say, not bad. Relative to uh, Sarah Palin's um, "Baby Got Back," who did it better? Uh, I didn't. I didn't see that. I didn't see her "Baby Got Back." Uh, I did also. I did actually go on a uh, a little bit of a dive into other Dancing with the Stars and uh, another person who showed up, uh, Rick Perry. Oh, that's right. Doing yeah. a weird hoedown uh, quick step or something. I can't remember what it was called to the song "Greed Anchors." And I gotta say, out of the two of them, Spicer was better. 
Good on you, Sean. Um, yeah, uh, but Sean, Sean Spicer has remained, um, and we can get into how he uh, actually ended up leaving the White House because this was, this was sort of uh, squabbles uh, within the administration, but Sean Spicer left after being uh, just uproariously bad at his job. We could all remember him furiously mm -hmm. chewing gum and sweating and yelling at people for being unfair to him. He was, he was about as laughably incompetent as you could ever imagine a press secretary of being. Uh, not long after that, he ended up back in the uh, press corps room, uh, this time as a reporter, uh, which was probably a much more comfortable place for him <laughs> to sit. <laughs> just, just asking softball fucking questions that he wished someone would have given him in his tenure. Uh, and then I've <laughs> no, it should this, be done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's showing you how to be nice. Uh, but I found this article in The Guardian from January 19th, 2021. Sean Spicer, Trump's ex-media chief, applies to join White House press corps under Biden. So, yeah, we had a thing of his uh, quotes. I thought, why not, Spicer told Politico. I cover the White House every day on the show, and I obviously had a lot to say about the coverage of the White House and the Correspondents Association over the last few years. You're never going to affect change if you stay on the sidelines. Uh, I, so I love when people, um, when, when asked their reason to do something, they just say, why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do the mooch? Yeah, let's talk about Long Island's finest, Anthony Scaramucci. Now, he made some huge waves in, the, uh, he made some huge waves in his uh, illustrious 11-day tenure as White House Director of Communications. So for those of you who may not remember, Anthony Scaramucci is an American financier. He worked at Golden, Goldman Sachs, and then after leaving Goldman Sachs, he founded Cap, uh, was it Oscar Capital Management in 2005, and he founded the investment firm Skybridge Capital, which I believe just recently did a big deal with Bitcoin. So he, he's a, uh, he is a sort of, I'm not sure if he's a poor man's version of Jordan Belfort, or if Jordan Belfort is a poor man's, poor man's version of Scaramucci, but it's one or the other. Yeah. Um, so he had a long, he had a long stand. He's another New York guy, hedge fund manager. So he had a long standing relationship with Trump um, from far before Trump's career in politics. Uh, he's written a, a few books, uh, Goodbye Gordon Gecko, How to Find Your Fortune Without Losing Your Soul. Sure. Uh, the Little Book of Hedge Funds, What You Need to Know About Hedge Funds But the Managers Won't Tell You, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success, and then, of course, his 2018 book, Trump, the Blue Collar President. So first of all, if you want to have a laugh, I would just highly recommend just reading his Wikipedia page. Um, but I wanted to go back to how the mooch, and that is we're not making that up. That actually was his nickname. As has been common, or as was common in the uh, Trump White House, there was a lot of infighting going on between different factions of, you know, more establishment Republicans with the more like Steve Bannon, Roger Stone types, uh, Rance Priebus, all of this, but... Uh, <laughs> I forgot about Priebus. Yeah, Rance Priebus. Uh, but I'm going to pull this, this New Yorker article that was Scaramucci's undoing by Ryan Lizza. 
Here's the headline. Anthony Scaramucci called me to unload about White House leakers, Rance Priebus and Steve Bannon. And then it says under the headline, he started by threatening to fire the entire White House communications staff. It escalated from there. Uh, <laughs> I would, I, I would happily read out loud this entire article because it is hilarious. But just to give a little context, uh, so basically he was, he was White House Communications uh, director. He wasn't happy that, the, uh, that this uh, Ryan Lizza uh, had tweeted um, citing a White House senior official that Scaramucci was having dinner at the White House with President Trump, the First Lady Sean Hannity, and the former Fox News, uh, Fox News executive Bill Shine. Uh, so, strange group, raised some questions, obviously. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, basically, in a nutshell, Scaramucci saw this tweet and was absolutely incensed about it, called up this reporter, and went on a insane diatribe yelling at him trying to get him to release his source now the funny the thing to remind to be reminded of here is that he did not explicitly say any of this was off the record and for anybody with a brain you should know that if you are talking to a reporter about anything delicate or sensitive the first thing out of your fucking mouth should be, this is strictly off the record. <laughs> Scaramucci didn't do that to you. I'm just, I'm just gonna read a couple parts of this. So, yeah. uh, so here's quoting from Scaramucci from the article. Uh, Who leaked that to you, he asked. I said I couldn't give him that information. He responded by threatening to fire the entire White House communications staff. What I'm going to do is I will eliminate everyone in the comms team and we'll start over, he said. I laugh, not sure if he really believed that such a threat would convince a journalist to reveal a source. He continued to press me and complain about the staff he'd inher he's inherited in his new job. I asked these guys not to leak anything and they can't help themselves, he said. You're an American citizen. This is a major catastrophe for the American country. So I'm asking you as an American patriot to give me a sense of who leaked it. So, Going on here, uh, in Scaramucci's view, the fact that the word of the dinner had reached a reporter was evidence that his rivals in the West Wing, particularly Rance Priebus and the White House, the White House Chief, Chief of Staff, were plotting against him. While they have publicly maintained that there's no bad blood between them, Scaramucci and Priebus have been feuding for months. So yeah, so he goes on to keep at keep trying to get who leaked this, uh, which like yeah, there's questions to. By the way, there's like questions to be asked about that dinner, but like it's his response to it seems to be a little over the top and very much implies guilt. If you're that worried, yeah, about the fact that this is coming to light. So we have Scaramucci. Is it an assistant to the president? He asked. I again told him I couldn't say. Okay, I'm going to fire every one of them, and then you haven't protected anybody. So the entire place will be fired over the next two weeks. So yeah, uh, again, still threatening to fire people because I guess he thought this would work on a journalist. They'll all be fired, he said. I fired one guy the other day. I have three to four people I'll fire tomorrow. I'll get to the person who leaked that to you. Rance Priebus, if you want to leak something, he'll be asked to resign very shortly. The issue, he said, was that he believed Priebus was, has been worried about the dinner because he hadn't been invited. Rance is a fucking paranoid schizophrenic, a paranoiac, Scaramucci said. He channeled Priebus as he spoke. Oh, Bill Shine is coming. 
let me leak the fucking thing and see if I can cock block these people the way I cock block Scaramucci for six months. It's wait, wait, Scaramucci was fired, right? He's fired from his yeah, so, yeah, he was fired is, after this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for all the reasons that people got fired in the Trump administration. None of them were really for like acting out like that. So yeah, well, uh, yeah. One of the other really famous ones was, of course, yeah. He, let's see. He said, "I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck my own cock." He said, "Speaking of Trump's chief strategist, I'm not trying to build my own brand off a of fucking strength of the president. I'm here to serve the country." Bannon declined to comment. Yeah. So anyway, so he goes on this like you know insanely paranoid fucking rant about Rance Priebus and uh, Steve Bannon and just trying to, you know, threatening to fire everybody and stuff. So later on that night, the the uh, writer of this article appeared on CNN to talk about the drama and he was talking about Scaramucci and Scaramucci called into the show <laughs> while, while he was on. Man. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so finally he says on CNN, when I put out a tweet and I put Rance's name in the tweet, he said, they're all making a, they're all making the assumption that it's him because journalists know how leakers are. So if Rance wants to explain that he's not a leaker, let him do that. Scaramucci then made a plea to viewers, let me tell you something about myself. I am a straight shooter. Uh, where is he now, Ben? Ah, where is he now? Well... Like I said before, he wrote his Donald Trump book, Donald Trump's Blue Collar President, where he's talking about his own blue collar upbringings, which Scaramucci actually, his dad was a uh, working construction or something and got, was able to get him, he was able to get into Harvard Law School. His dad, uh, you know, found a way to uh, pay for that. And so Scaramucci did actually have a very blue collar upbringing. And in the book, strangely, he tries to compare Donald Trump's upbringing to his own upbringing. And purports that uh, Donald Trump was a blue collar guy. It very, seem, it very seems like um, one of many attempts that we've seen from people who have been fired, uh, you know, like Jeff Sessions and others of trying to kind of get back in his good graces. Uh, he went back to being a hedge fund manager. He's, uh, so he's back at Highbridge Capital. Uh, very blue collar. And, doing his hedge fund managing. And I don't know exactly when it happens, but he is all over or has been all over CNN, BBC, MSNBC uh, as part of the resistance against Trump now. Um, he was he was on just a few days ago of you know, talking about healing and how it's so good to get rid of him. So I don't know exactly when he, uh, when he turned, mm -hmm. but it was after he wrote that book because the book is very, very glowing portrayal of him. I just wanted to give one more thing of uh, Scaramucci's business ventures because he does seem to be a very savvy uh, hedge fund manager. So he's done quite well with that. But I just wanted to bring up this uh, business venture from his, uh, this is from his Wikipedia page. So on October 2nd, 2017, Scaramucci launched an online media venture called the Scaramucci Post. At a press conference, Scaramucci said that, quote, we have no idea what the Scaramucci post is and neither do you, but we launched it today and we launched with great fanfare. And so we have to, we'll have to see how the whole thing unfolds. Later that month, the post was criticized for posting a Twitter poll asking, quote, 
How many Jews were killed in the Holocaust? Ooh, what a way to start. The, the tweet was posted by Scaramucci's business partner, Lance Lafer, without the approval of Scaramucci, who was in London at the time. When he found out about the tweet, Scaramucci was reportedly furious at Lafer. The tweet was soon taken down, and Scaramucci subsequently wrote that, quote, if anyone was offended by this act, you have both my sincere personal apology and commitment that it will never happen again and pledge to donate $25,000 to the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Subsequently, however, the post, the post tweeted that they had changed their mind on the poll, defending their decision to post it and accusing their critics of laziness and mob mentality, claiming that the poll was designed to illustrate the memory was fading of the death of 6 million Jews. Uh, so just argument to, you made there. Um, we should we should contact the Simon Wiesenthal Center and see if they got that money. Yeah. Oh, I, it sounds like they didn't. <laughs> you know, it's Scaramucci was like, you know what? Fuck these guys. I'm keeping my twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah. So just a public service announcement for anybody, any tweeters out there. Before you tweet a poll about how many Jews died in the Holocaust, preface it with why you're tweeting that. Yeah, something to keep in mind. Um, Con context is everything, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I guess that's a good one. Uh, you have more maybe, about the mooch? That's it on the mooch. I, I thought we should, uh, just to round this off, uh, we should talk about the uh, open letter to publishers. And I think we should also just mention Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, I got to mention Kellyanne Conway. Um, uh, we, there's not much available about this other than the fact that um, Kellyanne Conway left uh, the Trump administration in 2020 and is now penning a book. And it is supposedly going to be, it's, it's garnishing the biggest um, advance out of all of these other books. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, from a, uh, from an article I saw from a White House insider, they said uh, Trump team or Trump insiders are quote, quaking in their boots hmm. at the idea of what this book may entail. Um, quaking in their boots is an odd turn of phrase. I suppose it came from an old prospector, but that's neither here nor there. But yeah, I suppose just to round this off, because talking about, you know, obviously there's a lot of people who are awful, who have are making awful amounts of money off of this, uh, off of writing about the Trump presidency. And just wanted to take this is a this is an article from the Guardian that came out on the nineteenth of January, twenty twenty one. So open letter calls for publishing boycott of Trump administration memoirs. Five hundred American authors and literary professionals have signed a letter calling on U.S. publishers not to sign book deals with members of Trump administration, saying those who enabled, promulgated, and covered up crimes against the American people should not be enriched through the coffers of publishing. First of all, like we said before, these are shitty books. And it's not that we shouldn't examine this, this time in history. Um, but I think, you know, I think one of the, one of the very clear things, you know, we're talking about books from John Bolton, Anthony Scaramucci, Kellyanne Conway, and, you know, litany of other people like Michael Wolf's book, like these people are liars. So we can't really trust what's in them anyway. At the other, on the other hand, though, there is, you know, question of freedom of expression and free speech and blah, 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 blah. And there are 
uh, so yeah, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder what you think about, about this. It reminds me actually of a quote from Stanley Crouch, one of my favorite authors who said, I don't believe in censorship. I believe in taste. Wish that were true moving forward. Um, obviously I'm not going to call for censorship of any of these books, but it is interesting to see what New York times calls the Trump bump. Um, and this article, uh, it, in the book section of the New York Times is called the Trump bump for books has been significant. Can it continue? Question mark. And just a notable quote from a literary agent at some place called ICM. They say Trump doesn't want to let go of his job and a shockingly high number of us don't want to let go of him. There's going to be an amazing appetite for books about what happened and all the oh my god moments of the last four years. Books are the medium for filling in these blanks. So I, I agree with you. These people are liars. We consider them liars up until the moment they denounce Trump. Again, yeah, I, I agree with what Stanley Couch said. I Not for censorship. I just wish people had better taste. Yeah. And, you know, I guess this, you know, this goes into, goes back to what we've been talking about with also like, you know, people, people want to, people want to put these years behind them and understandably so, but we also can't. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we, if we're, if we're to make sure that this doesn't happen again, those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it, that whole thing. Uh, so this, you know, the, the phenomenon that has been the last four years does need to be unpacked uh, and it does need to be studied. Uh, I would like to have a little breather. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to have a little distance from it. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to buy these books anyway, but I'd also like to, you know, yeah, there's, you know, uh, firsthand, you know, firsthand sources are great, but who are these sources? Again, like, I don't really trust anything that comes out of these people's minds. And I don't, I don't want to give them money. I don't know if, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a silly thing to call on publishers to do it. They're, they're businesses. They're going to worry about their bottom line. And if, you know, Kelly and Conway's book is absolutely going to be a bestseller. Yep. So if you're a publisher, of course, you're going to do it. That's, that's, uh, that's, it'd be, it'd be malpractice not to, right? But the, the thing with the, you know, just to play devil's advocate a bit on the, uh, on the, like the son of Sam's law thing, it's like, yes, all of this is true, but these people haven't been convicted of crimes yet. Mm -hmm. So they do, they do need to be convicted of these crimes before you can actually use that as a salient argument. So I don't know, don't read any of these books yet, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure what, uh, what else I have to say on the matter other than it's a, it's, you know, like banning Trump from Twitter. Uh, it's a slippery slope to just say, don't publish these books, but at the same time, don't read these books. They're probably stupid and they're probably factually inaccurate and they make people like Anthony Scaramucci and Kellyanne Conway and John Bolton Witcher. Yep. On that note, this is something I've long argued that I wish I, I wish the press during the Trump years would have taken him seriously rather than becoming like a gossip columnist. Um, can you imagine if there were there was books coming out about Trump's Iran policy, um, Trump's China policy, in the same way that we look at like books about Obama or Nixon or LBJ? And I'm not saying that Trump deserves that kind of recognition, but 
it, it just, I think, would be a better way to have combat that phenomenon and possibly would have made the 2020 election uh, much less contentious. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not like there was a lack of substance there. I mean, there was lack of substance from what he said and did, but like there wasn't a lack of, uh, you know, real life and death issues to talk about. So absolutely. Uh, but again, I guess it just could. I hope this hunger dies down. I don't know if it will, I, but other than the fact that, you know, a Biden administration won't have as much uh, melodrama going on. So they won't be able to bank on this as much. I don't yeah. think, like, I don't, I don't think this model is sustainable. No. Um, and just like, like we said, there's been about 1200 books written about the Trump administration, more on the way it seems. Um, in comparison, the Obama administration in the first four years, there were 500 books um should we do a lean into grant julian sure we are going to be speaking today with dr grant julian about the current state of satire the power structures of satire and about the surreal world we live in did live in under the trump administration it's a good conversation we are here with dr grant julian who is a Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, as well as a member of, I have here, the Lighthearted Philosophers Society, the International Association of Society of Humor, and also a comedian. Did I miss anything there, Grant? Yes, but that last part about being a comedian, that's, can we put that in quotes? <laughs> he is a, he is a quote-unquote, with the fingers, comedian. Yes. Well, we're very happy to have you here. Uh, Grant has written some great articles that I've read in my own research on satire and comedy, and especially uh, speaking to uh, power structures in comedy and satire. So we're really happy to have you here to speak about that. I guess we could just dive in with, uh, how do you define satire? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, uh, I would say any comedy that attempts to bring about some sort of social change, right? So there has to be some element in it that attempts to bring about change as opposed to just telling a joke for any old dumb reason. Um, that said, that doesn't mean that all satire, it, you know, has you know, good in it, but that's sort of a general idea. And if you look at satire from, you know, from the beginning of, from antiquity to Swift, um, it's trying to accomplish something, right? Which I think makes it special in a sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as you've stated that uh, your, a, a main focus of yours in philosophy is looking at the ethics in comedy. And I was wondering if you could briefly explain uh, what the study of ethics in comedy is and uh, how this came to be the focus of your own research. Yeah, thanks a lot. So I got into, uh, philosophy of comedy or humor studies or comedy studies through Kierkegaard. So I'm a, I guess, a Kierkegaard scholar. He's a primary philosopher that I deal with. Um, and recently, I'd say in the past few years, I've really started to dig into his ideas on humor and comedy. And he is one of the staple figures in comedy studies and humor studies. His name does come up for his, uh, his contributions to irony and humor. And he does have a lot to say. And so I started to write in that. And then I uh, eventually started to go to the conferences and realize that um, it is just an incredibly multidisciplinary field that is comedy studies of linguists and psychologists and sociologists and philosophers. And in fact, I was like, you know, it wasn't, you know, maybe 
a quarter of the people were philosophers. And so it's more of an in, in discipline, uh, interdisciplinary linguists. I mean, it's a fascinating field that's really taken off. And so um, I do, you know, I primarily do my area in ethics. That's what I teach in, mostly applied ethics. And then, yeah, it all sort of came together in the past few years where I've uh, really been digging into uh, comedy and then particularly the ethics of comedy. So that's sort of how I fell into it through Kierkegaard. And um, uh, the, in terms of the ethics of comedy, there's a lot that's been written about it. And I think it's incredibly timely now uh, because, um, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity in terms of what can and cannot be said. And I was listening, you know, to, to your other episodes, you guys had a lot of thoughtful comments on free speech. And that's, that's what's so interesting when it comes to humor that you, you know, lots of issues of free speech come into it. And, um, and it obviously involves art and aesthetics and all sorts of things. Um, but I think we are at a time where we really have to start to consider um, how we throw our punches, right? So to speak, in terms of uh, throwing, uh, punching up and punching down. Um, and it's, it's certainly not an easy thing to talk about ethics in general, let alone in comedy. But lately I've really been exploring that the sort of punch up, punch down framework, which has really become the dominant framework for looking at ethics and comedy and, and you know, contemporary discourse. Um, and, and, and looking at it from, as you said, from, from the power structures. Uh, and, um, and so, so right. But, but of course there's all sorts of ethical dimensions that we can talk about with comedy and humor. You know, you could go on that for, for however long, like I said, there's issues of, um, I'm, I'm personally intrigued about the, the space of comedy and how it does, it can be a very dangerous space, a space where uh, you can say things and do things in it freely, right? Without, and say, oh, well, it was just a joke, right? So you can do things in humor and comedy that you would never do otherwise. And I'm very fascinated with that. And of course, you know, I think certain people abuse that space um, and, and certain people use it in productive ways. Um, and that's sort of like what, what I, when I talk about the ethics of it, I really like to focus on that sort of liminal space. Um, but, um, but I'll pause there. No, that's, that's great. Uh, so I first came upon you writing, as I said before, in the Comedy Studies Reader in your essay, uh, Satire in a Multicultural World, a Bakhtinian Analysis, which is a wonderful article where you explore the sat satirical cartoons published by Yelans Posten in Denmark and Charlie Hebdo in France and the subsequent uh, criticism and violence that followed. I was wondering if you could walk us through what those cartoons were, the reaction that came out from their publishing and uh, your own analysis of the situation that's inspired the essay. Sure, and let me just say first off that it's a really controversial uh, situation and um, I'm not a French citizen and you know what I mean? I can imagine someone listening to an American talk about this and you know, like I said, um, and, um, but the, the Danish cartoon Charlie Hebdo uh, had republished these Danish satirical cartoons that were, so initially, you know, the, Charlie hadn't published the, the cartoons himself, that, you know, they republished them. And throughout, um, I think, you know, early 2000s uh, up until, you know, the actual, you know, bombing, um, and, and the terroristic actions. Um, certain cartoons were drawn by some of their own artists in addition to republishing some of these cartoons. And um, the uh, backlash obviously was 
mostly from the Muslim, the Muslim community, although, the, you know, there wasn't, uh, this is not to say there weren't advocates for them in, in, um, in their culture. Um, but ultimately, you know, after there was, there were lawsuits, they tried to go through the court system and try to the, um, argue that this, these cartoons were defamatory. And again, the, in the article itself, it looks at four, I think four different cartoons and they're all different. And I think it's very important that when you, when you look at a piece of art, you need to look at you know, each one and, and look at the artist and what the intent was. And that's sort of what I do. And um, you know, I think when it, you know, some of them are, are obviously clearly racist, I mean, there's no question about it. Well, yeah, and you know, I was doing a, doing a little research for this. Uh, I think it bears mentioning that you know Charlie Hebdo before this had gone on, uh, or a few years before. I can't remember exactly when it was, but they ha they have uh, they have a rather nasty history of some very racist uh, material. One of which was a uh, depiction of uh, Christi uh, Christiane uh, Taubira. I think I'm saying that. I hope I'm saying that right. Who is a uh, French justice minister who is a black person uh and portrayed as a monkey so yeah, I, yeah. I, this, no, this was some, something some of them yeah and, and, uh, grant just for clarity um charlie Hebdo, french um cartoon publication they republished the danish cartoons depicted. originally yes okay, that yeah. was the initial thing that happened they merely republished these danish cartoons um depicting uh, uh you know just the, the caricatures you know um and then they sort of started to draw their own cartoons. And th there's um, like five or six different cartoonists. And you, I started to get them. I studied these cartoons quite deeply. Um, and um, yeah, the, as you said, you know, some of them are, are clearly hateful. Um, but even some of the ones that try to be, uh, but so ultimately, yes, this led to um, uh, the bombing. This was after many, many years of attempting to uh, uh, you know, stop the, the cartoons, right? And and there's no justification whatsoever for the violence, right? There's n absolutely none. No, I don't think anybody is going to justify anything like that. But I keep going back to the question of, well, what other mechanism did they have? They went through the courts, that didn't work. Um, and they don't necessarily have it. Well, that's, that's another issue that I really think is interesting is that if Hebdo had published a different cartoon next to it, one that was maybe more fair, or maybe one that depicted an opposing side, or um, if they had, if there was a satire that was equivalent, because there's no equivalent, you know, for the um, Islamic community for them to post cartoons, like it, it's just not part of their cause. So it wasn't like they had any means to fight back. Mm -hmm. and well, so and, uh, and at least I know that Yilan's Poston had reportedly uh, rejected cartoons uh, portraying Christ before. So there, there's a there's a sense of, uh, there's in, there doesn't seem to be a sense of equality in uh, who the targets necessarily were, at least at this time. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And that's it. And then as I said, also you have a larger cultural history of, you know, oppression, right? And, that, and that's something you have to take into consideration. And so all of these factors together, I think, you have an ethical problem there. Um, but of course you have issues of free speech and then people are gonna say, well, it's just a cartoon, man. It's it's funny, it's a joke, can't you laugh? And this is an infringement upon my rights. And um, I think, you know, France and the United States have those two things in common is like they take their free speech very seriously. Like it is 
like we take, it's like the most important value. Like, and um, you know, sometimes you ask yourself, you know, is, is there, is there a limit to this, you know? And even what we saw last week, you know, I know that wasn't comedy, but I mean, when it comes to these questions about free speech, when you do something like that and you reach to the point of anger and rage and, and it leads to violence. So, and those are two different issues, but I guess my point is that, um, you know, they definitely play roles in this. Um, yeah, well, and there, there seems to be a question of benefit other than it is uh, done to aggravate a group of people that doesn't want that to be depicted. And I, I don't I don't see the, I don't think the answer is censorship in general, but at the same time, you're not going to see a New York, you know, New York magazine with a picture mocking 9-11 in the World Trade Centers on the cover of it. And exactly. Grant, just before yeah. we jump in on that, um, for our listeners, can you tell us what was in the cartoons, uh, what they depicted? Sure. Well, there was a number of cartoons. And um, and actually, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I read that paper a couple of years ago, so it's not completely fresh in my in my mind. Um, but a lot of them um, visually depict Muhammad, which is forbidden. And the cartoons are egregious. I mean, the cartoons, the way that they're drawn, um, depict, uh, you know, physical tropes that are um, blatantly racist. I mean, so so it's not only that they are, you know, depicting, as you said, it, it's, it's there's no value to it. It's, it's not, they're not, as we said, with satire, at least I said, there should be some at least positive component to it. It's going to sting, but it's not clear that that brings anything to the, to the discussion. It just makes people mad. Um, so, uh, so a lot of uh, depictions about that, a lot of depictions of violent nature of Islam. So, uh, you know, cartooning, um, cartoons about, you know, a thousand lashes, if you don't laugh, you know, um, uh, you know, just, again, not funny jokes, like just dumb tropes that you said. It's like, it's not even like, these are just dumb, like, just, it's like this stupid, you know, so, right. So, um, but at the same time, um, you know, they may find that funny, but if that's your religion, you that you take that very seriously. And not only do, do they not, you know, depict their God, but they certainly don't joke about their God. And uh, you know, if that's not going to be taken into consideration by the cartoonist, and, and and again, it's you know, that's such a big part of their culture, like just to, just to, you know, so yeah. Well, and uh, uh, I think I think that's an important. I think that's an important thing to point out too, is that you know the uh, a lot of the Ebdo cartoonists were saying, no, we're the, we've got nothing wrong with Islam. What we're going against is uh, extremism, and you know that's the to me that seems like that's all well and good, uh, but at the same time, if the only depictions you have of Muslim people is of horrible extremists. I mean, isn't there, shouldn't there be a little self-reflection on the fact that we're, we're only portraying this one kind of Muslim person, which, you know, makes up a fraction of a very, very, very small percent of a worldwide religion of, you know, a couple billion people, probably. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. And, and that's the problem is it's just such a homogenous depiction and I suppose, you know, when it comes to any parody, that's the nature of a parody. It's going to be a crude depiction. But again, there's no nuance to the humor whatsoever. It, I mean, there's, um, and again, so like I said, it's, it's just the same, same 
crude humor. So in same, same crude depiction. So you're right. If there was some alternative or like, again, another cartoon or, you know, something where they could view, view their humor, you know, it, it'd be better. I think this brings up uh, the point about punching up and punching down. I know you have some thoughts about this. Can you elaborate? Sure. So it's become the pop popular in uh, discussing what's appropriate comedy or not to talk about comedy from the perspective of uh, punching up and punching down. And so the idea is pretty simple. Punching up is uh, a joke. If you're punching up, it's acceptable. And even an act of social justice. Um, if you're punching down, it's considered bullying. Um, and so there's a sort of David and Goliath approach. And so um, an example that I give in an, uh, a recent article is uh, Michelle Brown in um, the White House Correspondence Center. Um, and again, I don't know if I'll, I'll censor out the word because I don't know what it would not say, but she said, uh, she referred to Donald Trump as the one P you're not allowed to grab, okay? Right. You can you can say whatever dirty word you want, by the way. Oh, great. We're like, let's start cursing. <laughs> Everybody... Free speech advocates yeah. here, you know. Hooray! Yeah. Yeah. We were uh, we were standing on ceremony for you, but now that we know you're cool, we can. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm not cool. No, 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 no. I listened to the first two. I'm like, I don't, I don't hear any cursing. I'm like, all right, I don't know if I. But anyway, so uh, we're, the de we're degenerates. It's okay. Good, 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 good to be in good company. Yeah. <laughs> but so right, the joke, the one pussy you're not allowed to grab, um, yeah. and. It's, it's a play on, it's, it punches up. It's a great joke because, you know, he was famously stated as, you know, you just grab him. And so that is an example of a joke that is, I think is a clear example of punching up. Um, now, an example of punching down is when, again, you prey on a marginalized group um, that really, again, has no means of attacking and there's no positive element to it. Uh, it's just straight negative. So again, I think, yeah, the, uh, the Hebdo cartoons, uh, they punch down um, because of um, the, the, the crude depictions of it. Um, now, does this mean that uh, if that, you know, humor should only um, punch down, um, or sorry, punch up rather, and that, you know, no, again, I don't, I don't think that we should censor humor. I just think that we should take responsibility for the words that we say and understand that when we do say them, especially in this day and age, that there can be consequences. And I was just joking is not, nobody is sometimes doesn't, it just doesn't work. Um, so if you think about that punch before you throw it, whether it's going up or down, um, then I think it, it, you know, it's a better way to think about it. Now I understand it's, it's also a bit of a Manichaean approach and, and overly simple to look at comedy just in terms of you know punching up is good and punching down is bad uh after all uh you know determining what's up and what's down especially since everybody perceives themselves as the marginalized group but um i don't know i, I just think it, in terms of looking at power structures at least um you know if you look at it from that perspective i think it um it could help i don't know so that is a yeah. <laughs> um that, that's a proposed solution, the punching up and punching down. Um, can you talk in contrast the offensive standard? Right, so offensive standard is just like, um, if you find a joke is unethical is if it offends you. And uh, it's, there's, you're never going to arrive at any sort of ethical standard of humor because obviously when it comes to humor, it's obviously contextual, right? Sometimes not only within a culture, but between a group or friends, so, um, right, I think that's just not really a good way to think about it. 
Um, but if you apply the punch up and punch down model, I think you can sort of consider your parties, well, okay, is this joke going to offend them? Um, you know, are they vulnerable, right? I think that's better. But, um, and I just kind of cite that as, as a general idea, you know, offensiveness. And there are much better ways of thinking about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to, uh, you outlined some arguments against the model or some criticisms of the uh, punching up model in the chapter you sent me. And I was w wondering if we could go through those a bit. Sure. Uh, because we give softball interviews where you already know the answers. Uh, but uh, so the first uh, you mentioned in passing, uh, first, I guess, is more of a criticism of satire in general, but I think it merits discussion. And I'm interested to hear uh, what your thoughts are. And that's uh, on misinterpretation. So you mentioned the TV show All in the Family uh, and the character Archie Bunker, who is supposed to be a satirical take on like a curmudgeonly racist old bastard. Uh, but a lot of people liked and identified with him. Uh, we've also seen in more recent years with uh, things like the Colbert Report or Tina Fey's portrayal of Sarah Palin amongst probably a lot of other uh, impressions on SNL in that for a lot of people, the satire didn't exactly land as intended. Um, there's psychological reasons to this. It speaks to theories and motivated cognition and perception bias, but basically people are going to see what they want to see in a sense. And satire doesn't work unless you're already preaching to the choir. And I, I guess my question for you would be, uh, do you see a way around this? No, I think it's a great question. And I absolutely th agree, think that it's, it, they do need to at least consider how it's interpreted. Now, I, the thing is, as I totally understand is when you write a joke, part of it is you, you go into it understanding that not everybody in the room is going to get the joke. And in fact, you know, many people may not get the joke. You understand that. But I do think that you should take in the possibility. The question is with that all in the family case, which I find so fascinating, because that's a very well-published case that some people found Archie were a figure of white supremacy, even though um, I can't remember the director of that show. He's uh, Norman Lear. Um, <laughs> Norman Lear, thank you. Yeah, yeah. His, I mean, he was obviously you know, arguing against that. Um, so, and I don't know how to like deal with that. Like what's like to designate what's satire and what's not because um, you know, what happens if you don't get the joke? And that's, that's the criticism is that when you, any joke runs the risk of watering, not, not only, you know, missing you know, the target, not landing. And as you said, you know, you already have your view, so you're not going to change my mind. But I guess what I want to argue is that comedy does at least give us a space to have um, productive argument. So while it can trivialize and people can misunderstand it, I think if done right, and if it's the right type of humor, then maybe we it can at least provide us with a space to at least change our minds. Because I don't know about you, one of the greatest things about comedy is its power to sort of uh, shift your mind and change your ideas. We've all oh, seen, yeah. I think, a piece of satire, even if you disagree with it, to be like, damn, that cartoon is good. Like, even if it's totally the opposite of what you believe, like it makes you, it stops you think, and you're like, there's this cognitive shift that goes on that I, that, that I, that I'm really, that's what I'm intrigued by the cognitive ability of humor to sort of change your ideas. Because when you're in comedy, especially with irony, when you're presenting something and you're saying the opposite of what you mean, you're forcing someone to wrestle with two opposing ideas. And that's why I think really that comedy has this ability to um, work through contradictions. And that's why I like Bakhtin so much. 
Um, but um, so I, that's that's always going to be a problem, you know, thinking about your target and not having a joke plan and having it be misinterpreted. Um, but I think if we just think more about humor and instead of just, you know, you know, just uh, just joking, you know, um, maybe we can have a productive space. I don't know. That's great. So, all right, next would be uh, the criticism of how about that comedy trivializes serious issues and can even lead to nihilism, as we've seen from great yeah. thinkers yeah. like Socrates and David Foster Wallace. Apparently. Yeah, yeah, they all think, uh, even Plato, right? They bemoaned the ability of comedy to sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, make light of very serious things that we should take uh, seriously, which is why Plato think that we should Plato thought that we should censor comedy, um, and so. For the most part, historically, like through modernity, comedy has been looked at as this, you know, this this uh, um, bad thing that you know uh, we should only joke about, you know, things that are very serious. Um, at the end of the day, yeah, like I said, that's always going to happen. I think that it's become such a part of our culture these late night shows that um, it's there. Um, and while it's not always effective, um, we notice that with every major revolution, that alongside of it is the art and the comedy that comes along with it. Um, so I think that it's always going to be there and, um, and it does trivialize, like you said, if you tell a misogynist joke, um, or if you tell a joke, you know, attacking misogyny, say for instance, Michelle Brown's joke, right. Um, you always, you know, run the risk of trivializing misogyny. I mean, that's, that's, you know, but you also maybe have an opportunity to have discussions too. I don't know. Wouldn't that be something that I, I, I remember from, uh, you know, Dave Chappelle has gotten a lot of heat over the last few years with some of his stand-up, and he made the point that, you know, in making certain uh, transgender jokes, and wherever you stand on that, there's, uh, his point was that he's, uh, he, he's actually normalizing uh, it in a way that he's actually bringing, like, rather than having some topic be off limits, you're actually bringing people in by allowing them to be made fun of just like everyone else. Okay, and so this was John Stuart Mill's primary argument for why there should be no censorship, right? So John Stuart Mill is just, you know, and you know, going back to you know, Locke and, and, and you know, sort of classical liberalism, you know, believed wholeheartedly that every idea should be entertained because um, if we censor certain ideas, um, well then, you know, we don't give people an opportunity to see how bad they are and they might like leak in, right? So that was his major idea that um, all bad ideas you need to let those people like so so mill was obviously he was of the opinion that there's no idea that should not be entertained so he like that, that's a great argument out that's now about like so some people you know you can't both sides certain things right and mill would john stewart mill would say yeah you can both sides in fact he argued that if there was a everybody in the entire world believed one thing that you would still have to have one advocate for the other side just so that you could have it right so so john stewart mill totally um argue that the problem with that is, is that sort of presupposes that we're all rational and that we're all, we all can not be manipulated. And that's, you know, John Stuart Mill believed that people would be able to see through it. But the problem is that, um, you know, when the press is, you know, before we just had like news, newspapers that you could easily control when everybody has a say now, right? And I'm not saying social media is a bad thing. I think it's great for free speech, but let's say someone has 50 million followers, right? That person has so much more of a voice than another person and then take maybe um, people start not believing in experts. And um, so I think there's a real limitation to that argument. So I guess when I think uh, when it comes to free speech, you know, um, 
I don't know that talk. And again, when it comes to Chappelle and he's coming around, it seems um, he definitely has come around and he's brought it up and he's a real, I, I really am. I, I love his comedy and I find him to be a really unique comic. Um, and even, and that, I mean, obviously you were referencing the sticks and stones one, but even the sort of that monologue that he gave outside in that drive. I mean, I don't know if you saw the thing that he did. I mean, it, it was just like, it, yeah. I don't know. I just really admire him. Um, so, right. So my answer to your question is that there, there are limitations to that argument. Um, are there certain things that just shouldn't be joked about? Um, I, I, I think yes, um, but I, I, that's, that's obviously, um, obviously that there's interesting discussions to be had here. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess I, I don't know if it's, uh, for me, yeah, I, I, like, are there things that are not funny and, and not appropriate? I think absolutely yes, but m maybe I guess, I wonder if it, we can only really know after the fact sometimes of, in hindsight of like, like rather than having a blanket, you can never say this, we have to, it, it, for better or worse, maybe has to be on more of a case by case basis. Right, so that's like sort of a consequentialist approach. It's funny if you laugh. Is that, is that what you're saying? I suppose so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the problem with that, again, is like, um, is that you're not thinking about the intent, right? You're yeah. thinking about exclusively the outcome. And, 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 I, and I think it's important that, okay, if you're going to throw a punch, but again, this all depends on where you are. Are you in a comedy club, you know, like with the two drink minimum, or are you, you know, in a, you know, doing political satire? You know what I mean? It, 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 context totally matters. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. That, that's, that's great. So you already touched on this before, but uh, the idea of satire with the punching up model that uh, does this mean that satire is now only for uh, marginalized people? Uh, so yeah, the question, uh, can rich, powerful people still be bullies or is that is that over now? Yeah, right. And that's a great <laughs> point, right? And and certainly, and I, and I think that's a straw man argument because certainly nobody would want to, because again, if free speech is our only mechanism to fight back, right? It's the one thing we can do. Like you can say whatever you want, um, again, as long as it does not bring about a riot or insurrection, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then, then there should, you know, obviously, uh, certainly even people who want limits on it, you know, would, would limit it to certain, that would be stupid, right? To say only a certain group of people can, can joke. Um, what we are saying is that if you are a person of power, then know that if you're gonna joke, then the target that you have, if they are marginalized, that it's gonna be, it could be perceived as bullying. So if Donald Trump is going to retweet a meme of Colin Kaepernick, um, that you know depicts his you know um, actions of social justice in a, in a terrible way, um, you know, I think that he should have thought about that. Right? You have all these followers. Why are you doing that? Um, so, uh, so does this mean that they? And again, we, does this mean that they shouldn't? I mean, uh, we're not telling them they can't. Like I said, and nobody wants. We're, we're not being the joke police here. I'm not at any point saying the government. You know, I'm just. We're not saying that. I'm just I'm trying to put the responsibility on comic. And people telling the jokes, um, but uh, so yeah. So so my answer to that is, I just think that if you have more power, you should just think about your words a little more because your words uh, matter a lot more apparently than my words. I, yeah, I mean, or go ahead, ahead then. Oh, okay. 
Um, I'm glad that you brought up memes. I kind of wanted to to just discuss like comedy through memes. Um, over the last five to ten years, they've really become more and more political and more um, uh, apparent in our society. Um, just curious about your opinion on the medium and what do you think that's done? Like, how do we as a culture absorb them um, and experience them and their impact for that matter? And their last, sorry, the last part and their what? Uh, and their impact for that matter. Right. That's a great question. Um, I guess I'm a big fan of memes. I guess I'm going to say I'm a little bit honest. I'm getting a little like, and maybe that's maybe just like with the, the, the gifts. Like, I guess when you see the same memes over and over again, of course, I think there's all, that's also the appeal to it. Um, I think memes are great overall. Like I said, in this terms of something we can all like, you look at a meme, you can enjoy it, you laugh at it. Um, you could, and that thing is like with a joke, like that's the trick is like finding a way to tell a joke, like a number of different ways, right? And with a meme, you could just take it on so many different ways. Um, that said, uh, the memification of culture can be annoying. Um, and, you know, going, going, going back to the sort of nihilism that David Foster Wallace, you know, be moaned, you know, um, even though, again, memes culture was long before, you know, after his death. Um, does it get to a point where we just become so apathetic because we just send each other all of these memes and we stop caring about politics? Um, I don't know. I think they obviously have an impact. So the, so the answer to your question, they obviously have an impact as art uh, and they're obviously having their place. Um, uh, you know, again, I think it just it needs to be thought about, you know, if, is, it, is it a quality meme? You know, is it, does it bring about does it do what it wants to do um in the end will we all only speak in memes and gifts <laughs> that's in the end we'll just yeah. have memes. i don't know um but I, overall i think they're good um it's just i think that if that's if that's all where if that's where you live only then you do run the chance of just everything becoming a joke which is what we don't want right we don't want to become completely nihilistic so the trick is to having comedy be like a a, a, a weapon for the good that's you know does good things <laughs> yeah that that brings me back to the one one last criticism you had with uh or a possible criticism of the punching up model that i think is i think is kind of the most uh, the most important um which is the uh which way is up who who is the moral I, and i guess this is a larger question for comedy is, or in general but it's just like who is the moral arbiter on what is and is not acceptable humor. Um, that's that's the question. So obviously, a general rule of thumb is: Are you in or out? Right? Are you are you part of the group? Okay. Mm. Um, and so, um, if you're part of the group, then you can probably throw that punch, right? Um, if you're not part of the group, you got to take a step back, right? And you should probably not throw that punch. Um, but um, in terms of, again, which ways that that's, that's the real question. But again, that's, that's just a larger ethical question too, in terms of right and wrong. You know, the other ideas, work through our ideas, explore different ideas. And again, that's what I love about comedy. It's this liminal ambiguous space that allows us to play with um, ideas that we wouldn't normally play with that, you know, are sort of taboo. Um, so, um, so uh, yeah, I think I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> but, great. No, that was great. Yeah, so I guess we unfortunately have to, we've already touched on it before, but uh, unfortunately we'd be remiss in talking about anything in this day and age without discussing it in the context of the era of Donald Trump. And uh, 
I'm interested to see what you think that has done to satire and comedy of public discourse of uh, what changes have you seen in the last four years? And, uh, you know, are there any lasting effects on our culture you think are, we're going to see moving forward? Um, now, are you talking just about the satire of Donald Trump or just like Donald Trump? Because like, I mean, there's... I think... I think it's a bit of everything because, you know, we've already we've already discussed that, you know, any time I don't think there's a time he's opened his mouth in his life where he's not punching down at somebody. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's the one thing of, you know, and this ties into his being canceled from Twitter and stuff like that of of do we want to cancel this guy out of our lives? Most of us would say, yes, I don't ever want to hear from him again. But then he's also he's also kind of not a fair. This is the thing that I have a hard time with with him is because he I don't think he's a fair example for how we should uh, make our ethical judgments at large because he's such an outlier. He is, and I agree. And that's my concern too is that he was such an outlier that what if he like you know changes things so drastically? Um, I agree with you that maybe we shouldn't make any you know, radical changes, but you're right. It was four years of punching down. I mean, think about when he attacks someone, what does he do? Like Sleepy Joe, right? He's got this name, like that's his way. And he thinks he's hilarious. He's not like, it's not like, I, he did make me laugh once. Like I laugh at him. It doesn't like his comedy's not good. Um, although I gotta say, I don't know, do you guys know this guy? And, I, and I'm fascinated by this guy. His name, he's, he's this conservative comic. His name's Ben Garrison. And he draws these cartoons. Oh, you, dude, you gotta look this up. Okay, I've, I think I've heard the name, but I haven't. Yeah, dude. Haven't and so he's a, he's a Donald, he's a, he's a Trump. He like advocates for Trump, right? And he draws these comics. They are, you got to see them. You got to look them up. The website is like Gur Comics. And by the okay. way, that's going to be the rest of your day because you're just going to be looking through these comics. <laughs> and they are like, it's, I, some of them are just, because some of them are, they're, they're very cute and on, like they, they embody, like they bury in there these, you know, some cute stuff. Um, and I, 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 it's the one instance where, cause I, and I'm to this day, like, I'm always interested why the right has not been able to pull off success, a successful Colbert. Like, and I, I, there's, so we have like the closest thing that you can maybe see is like a Babylon B maybe where you have sort of, you know, the Christian sort of satire, but, and, and I'm not like, and I'm, and I'm interested to hear what you guys think. I'm actually, I'm interested, like, so and maybe there is, but to this day, I've not successfully seen the right pull off that. And when you look at those comics of Ben Garrison, you're gonna, you're just going to be like, what is this? I'm, I'm, I'm interested to look at them. Um, I do have like, well, this is something, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you about, because I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that a lot of satire in the last four years has really suffered because of Donald Trump. I think it's gotten kind of lazy all around. To answer your question, I'm of the personal opinion that I feel like we don't see any good right-wing comics because they just get too fucking mad <laughs> when, when they're talking. Like, they can't make a joke because they get so infuriated with whatever they're talking about. Uh, you know, so it becomes this sort of Alex Jones-type uh, thing where any anything that would start as comedy turns into this, you know, bloodthirsty rant. Like wrestling, right? That's right. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, I have to, and people can hate me as much for saying, or as much as they want for saying this, but set, like, it's hard to admit, but 
Alex Jones is an incredible entertainer. Uh, like he's 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 very talented at what he does. I don't like him, but like you can't deny the insane charisma and the pull he has. And I think that's why we also haven't seen really a successful um, Colbert rapport that speaks to the Trump era. Like spoofing like a Bill O'Reilly, George Bush era is a little bit easier, but like to spoof, to have a Colbert in Trump era, would you need to go like full on QAnon uh, uh, Alex Jones level. And I don't, I don't feel like liberal comics are willing to do that. In so fact, it would be more of like a performative wrestling thing then. So like you're saying like, cause, cause that's what I mean. Like, I don't understand. Like it's it, the formulas there. You just take like a Colbert's, it's a great idea. You just, it's a, it, you know, and again, I'm th- even, I know his new show where you know, he doesn't have the character, he broke character, but I mean, yeah. just the idea of a satirical show like that. I mean, I would just, watch that. That actually sounds hilarious if we just had pro wrestling and QAnon <laughs> put together. I, I'm, I'm actually totally right, for that. Let's make this happen. Let's this is the yeah. idea. We're going to get a Kickstarter anyway. going and we'll, yeah. we'll put this together. Um, no, I don't want anything to do with that. But that, that's interesting. <laughs> but no, I don't. So, so you're saying then that, yeah. And then, yeah, Dan, what do you think? Do you think, is there like, I, why? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I know, um, I think it was during the 90s, uh, Fox News tried something called like the half hour news hour. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually kind of funny. Um, some of the jokes that they make, I think that's the closest that they've ever got. Um, I am particularly interested in the response to Trump's punching down, which I feel like has been four years of like punching down from the opposite angle. Like, I think people like to make fun of Trump's weight or um, his hair that he's orange, things like that, which are funny, of course, but like, is that punching up? Is that punching down? And then the last thing I want to say about that is, um, I, I, I don't know how you do, again, I don't know how you do satire. I think one of the, the funniest things I saw was, if you guys remember when Kanye visited Trump in the White House, and it was ridiculous, yeah. of course. Um, and then SNL tried to spoof that moment. And SNL's sketch pales in comparison to the actual moment when Trump and Kanye visited, like somehow the actual moment was more outrageous than the SNL sketch. Um, so just some thoughts on. on well, yeah, this is the this is the thing that's driven me crazy the last few years about a lot of the like late night liberal talk show stuff is, is when you're trying to spoof what's gone on over the last few years, it almost, I feel like it always falls flat because what's going on in real life is so much more ridiculous. And also, I don't know, maybe also so depressing at the same time. It's like, it's, you know, it's, we're, it's, it, we're already in this traumatic situation, so I don't want to hear it anymore. And then any kind of attempt to spoof it is just not as, is like, yeah, insane as what the real thing is. So I kind of like, I don't know, I've seen a lot of satire where I was like, why'd you even try these days? Like, you're not, what? you're not gonna, you're not gonna <laughs> compare to this. One thing I'm interested in as well is this divergence between left and right wing comedy. I it's it's like, you know, we talk about like just general facts and they're so hard to like meet in the middle with somebody who's on the opposite side of the spectrum as you. And I'm just I'm wondering if that is the same with comedy. If like we just don't agree on anything, so how could we make like where where is the common ground for for comedy? I don't know. I I really want to maintain that like laughter and humor is a universal human trait i i honestly think like um like that we that what defines us as humans like i really believe this is that we laugh 
And I know that Provine and others argue that, you know, we, laughter developed as a social, you know, mechanism to, to unify us. Um, so I do think there, like, you, you can get somebody on both sides to look at something and objectively laugh at something. So there is something that, you know, I'm not making a claim that there's something funny objectively in any sort of platonic sense, but um, I don't know, maybe it's just when we bring in values and start joking about politics and it stops to become funny for each side. Maybe it's the content. I don't know, but um, I do want to maintain that, like, we all have a natural sense of humor. It's just, you know, needs developed and cultivated. Do you think there's somebody like a comedian or a show or anything really that does bridge both sides of the spectrum? So, hmm. So I'm really in like podcasts and like improv stuff. That's mostly like what I listen to. And I just like that because it's not really political. It's just like, and again, I know you said you do acting. I, I, those guys are comic geniuses. They just riff mm -hmm. like for hours and just mm -hmm. hilarious stuff. Like I don't know where it comes from. Um, so that to me, that sort of comedy, like you're not even doing politics, like you're just laughing. And so I that's feel, yeah. I feel like uh, I feel like absurdism and that sort of you know we're talking about obviously we've been talking about satire, but I think there is like the more comedy of the absurd. I think maybe to me seems to be the more universal uh the 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 more universal form that can kind of bring people together there's some things that are just sort of elementally funny yeah yeah we could all laugh at the absurd right and so yeah no i think there are certain things that we all find funny um yeah like bananas bananas what's, what's your what's your opinion on bananas I what's find the deal with bananas I, I don't know why but i think they're very funny <laughs> i mean they grow on some sort of tree yeah they got a funny shape. They're yellow. Weird yeah. yellow. They squish. Yeah. You can slip on them. You can also slip slippery. on them. Slipping on a banana is always fun. <laughs> it really is. It's, yeah, it's true. I will always laugh at, at that. Or if you pretend a banana is a phone or um, a gun. <laughs> a gun is great. Um, Red, I was wondering, um, hopefully the Trump show is over. We can bury it deep underground. Um, do you have any predictions of what comedy might look like in the Biden years? I don't know. I already sense a sense of levity. Um, I feel like because our, our, our comedy was so dominated by, it was just so reactive for four years. Like I said, that's all the humor was. That's all anybody could joke about. Um, that, you know, not, not that those problems that we have now are going to go away but maybe because this absurd person is no longer there to joke about, we can joke. I don't know. Um, so how's it going to change? You know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Um, I, I don't know, like in terms of like um, censorship and, um, you know, canceling and, and woke culture and all of these things, these, these are questions I think that people are still having a difficult time navigating um, uh, you know, in terms of humor, um, I think people are still trying to figure out, you know, how to tell jokes, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, th I think it's, it's really murky waters, right? The comedy's hard. It's not easy. If you're going to do it, just know that, you know, uh, you can either, you know, kill or be killed, you know? I, I do wonder how Stephen Colbert keeps his job. How so? Before Trump, I, I think Colbert came on, he took over the late show in like 2015, maybe, maybe 2014. And I remember him having abysmal ratings. And then the Trump show rolled into town. 
he ended up breaking his straight man character to basically go back to the Colbert Report character, um, which is fine. It's lazy. I don't know how he maintains that when Orange Man is gone. You're right. And that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. Um, or even, yeah, how media in general is going to change. Like I said, everything is just all these news cycles have been about this man. And now, and now that he's, it's interesting. Like now that he's off Twitter, it's like, it's just so weird not to hear anything. It's, it's, it's I can, yeah, I can literally, like, I feel like there's just like tumbleweed going by. With, I'm okay with, with that. I'm okay yeah, with the tumbleweed. Yeah. I think we, I think we all are, you know, yeah. kind of no matter where you lean yeah. politically, I think everybody's a just, little relieved. And I feel like that, yeah, I, I, I feel like that speaks to what I was saying before of that, like, I felt like a lot of left-wing satire was very lazy and it's just like, but how could, there was literally no way to talk about anything else for four years because there was, you know, in other presidencies, like I'm not saying every, every president's perfect, they all have a lot of problems in the Biden administration, I'm sure we'll have tons of problems, but like, it was like, you couldn't count the scandals and you couldn't count the bullshit because it kept happening. Sometimes it was mm -hmm. like three a day, it felt like that we just, ne yeah, we never got a break. It was just relentless and it was exhausting. That was the comedy. Like that was like, yeah. that was basically yeah. four years of just, and you're right. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't really funny. It was sad. I mean, yeah, it was, it was exhausting. So yeah, maybe we're all just at this point where, again, I don't know about you. It's just like, I just want like, some base level of normalcy again and yeah. just and then we can maybe start over okay start over yeah i think everybody's like so emotionally exhausted no yeah again no matter what side of the spectrum that you land on um to better days i hope yeah so you mentioned that you had a uh, new piece you're working on you already mentioned kierkegaard uh but you are uh, working on some some new writing implementing that philosophy oh and did Kierkegaard tell jokes? Is he a funny guy? Oh, he's it? hilarious. The whole thing is a joke, but people don't get that. So he wrote in these pseudonyms under these different names, right? So for most of his authorship. And it's all just jokes. So yeah, he's he's very funny, but it's it's hard to get. Danish humor is also a bit odd. Um, but so right, so right now I'm working on this idea of these comica, the idea of comic energy or comic force. And I found the expression in Kierkegaard, he talks about cultivating your comic energy. And I just, I was really intrigued by it. I started to do a deep dive, like where did this word come from? Uh, you can trace it back to Caesar. Um, but basically the general idea I'm toying with is that we all have this sort of innate uh, comic energy to us that we're almost born with. Um, and that, you know, you have to sort of learn to cultivate it. And some people don't, some people do, um, but, you know, you sort of, when you're younger, you have this sort of, you know, I have kids and you have this really crude sense of humor, you know, everything's pee and poo. And then it's like, you know, you get older and you start to develop it. And um, I don't know, overall, um, Kierkegaard is, I, I like him because he maintains that like humor is essential for the well-lived life. Like it's, a, it's like a primary mood that shapes your life um, and uh, something that you need to cultivate. So that's basically where my research is. Um, it's sort of talking about how to fight like Kierkegaard. So I, all my writings, like the last thing was like, it's about punching up, punching down. So I find value to talking about humor in terms of throwing punches. And you mentioned martial arts, which was interesting. Yeah. But because like I said- we I talk enjoy about, violence as well. <laughs> yeah, and violence, right? And so because we talk about comedy in this way, I think it's, it's, it's good. So 
Um, so far as I know, there's not too many people writing about this, like comic energy. So we'll see where we go with it. I'm on like a, a revised, I submitted it to a journal. I had a reviewer number two who had some comments and, and revising. And so yeah. we'll see. It, it kind of sounds like it has like a little bit of a, it makes me think of Taoism with like chi energy and, and that sort of thing of like your chi aura, your uh, essential energy. I wonder if. I, it, yeah, I think there's idea? something to it. And I'm reading like lots of German aesthetics and German idealism. And a lot of them toy with this idea in romanticism that, you know, um, there's a natural sort of aesthetic energy with us. So that that's, that, that's absolutely what I have in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not necessarily, again, making the case that this is true or not. I'm just saying, like, what if we thought about comedy as an energy, as a force? Because obviously, look, it, it does work that way. I can say something now and I could make you pee your pants. I, I mean, you, you, you know, and then I could also say something and make you incredibly mad. And and you could say something and, and have a, your building be bombed. I mean, so so my point is that it's it is a force. It is an energy almost like fighting. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's sort of what I'm toying with. I don't know how it necessarily fits with the other theories of humor, which is why maybe it's not being accepted into the journal, <laughs> we'll see. You're, you're too radical. You've become oh, yes, too radical. radicalized in your, uh, in your comedic humor. endeavors. Yes. And uh, so, so you said earlier that uh, it was a uh, finger quotes comedian, but you, uh, you, have, you, have you delved into any sort of uh, stand-up endeavors yourself or sort of tested these theories, any uh, testing your own comic energy? Yeah, so I, so I did the research first. And then when I started the research, I was like, you know what? I was like, if you're really gonna do research in comedy, you have to freaking do it. You yeah. can't just sit here and write, all, sit here, study all summer, read these articles. You gotta go out on a stage and do it and see what it feels like. So part of it was when I really got into it, like started doing the research was, um, yeah, I got to stand-up. And I, I always kind of wanted to do it. Of course, it is sort of like now it's like you have, it's like almost like this, you know, meme itself, you know, sort of this, the, the midlife crisis where you, you know, start doing stand up comedy, you know, <laughs> like my wife was a little bit worried, you know, when I started, she's like, what are you doing? Can't you just like, buy a motorcycle? Yeah. <laughs> like, does it make any money? No, no. Yeah. Why, are, why are you doing it? I don't know. Um, but it is a thrill, like riding a motorcycle. It's terrifying. You get up on yeah. stage. Um, so so my, in terms of my experience, just the, I would, before Corona, I uh, would just do the open mics. Um, and so I started doing them at the comedy conferences, which was really cool. So you'd go, you'd give a paper and people like, well, let's just, you know, um, and I had one friend, he's like, look, and my friend Adam, uh, I'll send him this link. He was one, he's like, no, we got to do this. And he was one that kind of got me into it. And it is like a drug. Like once, you, once I did it and um, you build a set, I'm always kind of working on it. Um, it's terrifying. Um, I, I hope that I can do it again. O obviously with COVID, I don't really see that comedy clubs like returning back to normal. Like that's one thing like that in music. I really miss music a lot. I'm a huge music fan. And like, I don't see how that can go back. So I don't see myself doing that for a while. Um, I don't know that I was funny, but I had fun. Yeah, I, I tried stand up like a couple times, like a million years ago before I, uh, before I, went to over to acting and then eventually got tired of doing that too but yeah I, I did a couple like open mics when I was really young I was probably like 19 and god damn it is terrifying it is the most it is the most terrifying kind of performance that I've ever experienced because like it's the most immediate uh 
it's the most immediate like feedback you can ever get. Like, it's like you, if you're doing well, you know, you're doing well, while you're doing well, if you're sucking, you are, you know, you're sucking right as you're away. sucking. <laughs> and there's basically no way to dig yourself out of that hole. Cause all your other jokes are just like that joke. <laughs> yeah. And it is the most brutal silence. Like I would rather be yelled at than <laughs> have the silence of being on stage. That's just my experience from it. But it it's a and I don't know. I've a I love stand up. I've always been obsessed with it since I was a kid, and I still am. Like I, it's one of my favorite art forms of being able to um, to be able to like craft a uh, a full a full set is this really, I don't think people full, I think a lot of people kind of think that people just get up there and sort of riff, but like the the amount of detail and experimentation and writing that needs to go into it, it's, I think it's really outstanding. It's, I'm amazed by it. I'm always amazed by the process. I love reading about comedians and how they do it. And you're absolutely right. Like even I'm constantly switching around jokes, like, okay, that joke would go better there because that goes into there. And last time I told that joke, it didn't get any laughs. So I either need to get rid of that joke or go back into the joke lab. And it is, it's like, there's a lot of thought to it. Um, I, I mean, again, that improv comics are a different breed because they can just like, I, and I'm, it is a form of acting. Uh, it's, I, and I'm trying to actually bring it into the classroom a little bit because I think it really helps with your public speaking skills. If you can do it, if you can just riff. Um, so, cause I, I'm, I, I'm the coach of the debate team. So I, I'm trying to bring the, that into my, um, those my team too but um yeah i mean stand up in itself is is it's it's like i don't know why people do it like i said it's just like it's just like am i trying to hurt myself like there's it's just like <laughs> i don't know it's like you're asking for it it's like i don't know comics are just weird like i said and I don't oh, know. they're all weird every yeah. dan and i have had some friends who are comics and i've never met a normal one no not no. saying i'm normal but no comics you just are can't all, be yeah you can't be normal no, you got to be a little bit of a freak to want yeah, to uh, yeah. subject yourself yeah. to that, I think. Huh. Brent, do you have a, a favorite joke of your own or one that you particularly like that you'd be comfortable to telling? <laughs> don't don't feel like you have to. Um, no, I mean, so like, yeah, like normal jokes, like I said, like, I mean, like in terms of, uh, I was, are you talking about a joke that I wrote or a joke that like, like a joke that I, like a, a joke that's already exists? Either one. You'd be a walks into a bar joke. Those are my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knock knock joke. Uh, I <laughs> my favorite like just joke that it's not my joke. Uh, it's a very well known joke. Um, so uh, there's uh, there's two muffins in an oven, and uh, one uh, one muffin looks at the next muffin and says, "Is uh, is it is it hot in here? Or is it just me?" And then the other muffin says, "Oh my god, a talking muffin." Classic. Sorry, that was. See, this is a dumb joke. Dumb jokes are the best. I think. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I always use that joke in terms of like. I hate, but I hate set up jokes like that. Or you just like sort of. Right? But that's not what stand up is. Stand up is like it's a story. Like I usually build these really odd narratives that just go weird places. Yeah, so I mean, it is sort of like writing an essay in a way, or constructing constructing an argument in the best way. Editing and trying yeah. to make it, trying to cut the fat off it as much as possible. And it's an incredible process. Yeah. Well, let's see. I don't. I don't know if I have any more. Dan, do you have any? No. Any other this questions. Has been, this has been great. Thank you.
Yeah, guys, thanks a lot. And like I said, thanks for being interested in my research. Anytime uh, anybody, like I said, I get really grateful for that. So good luck. I listen to your other episodes. They sound really great. So uh, good, good luck with uh, oh, the podcast. Thank you very much. And uh, the chapter you sent me, what, what book is that going to be in? Right. So the Lighthearted Philosopher's Society, who you mentioned in the beginning there, um, mm -hmm. they just are sort of putting together um, a, a textbook just for a general uh, humor studies class for, for students. So that's going to be a part of that. Um, and then the other article I'm working on, um, I'm trying to submit to humor studies, I think. So there's right, like three major journals. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Wonderful. And is there any, uh, any other uh, work you would like us to like us to plug to our vast audience? I wish that I, I did have anything to promote. Uh, so uh, that's all right. That's fine. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thanks, man. This is really uh, yeah, likewise, guys. conversation. This was fun. Thanks a lot. Thank yeah. you. See you, Grant. Take Thank care, you. guys. Yeah. See ya.